everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. I've met people that had lives a thousand times worse than mine and they thought it was a cake in the park. And I've met people that have been like, you know, yours, I could never make it or they thrive through. And so the, the comparison of it is like, I think life in general is traumatic. And I, I just love everybody feeling safe to be able to express it and know that like, these are the things that molded us. And I think they're the things that make us special as entrepreneurs. Growing up in Boston with the world that I had, I believed that there was this beautiful world outside of it, right? When I could remove myself, I could get there's this different level of humanity, which for sure there was. But I never expected it. 20 years old, 21 years old, to be exposed to the darkness of humanity that exists for such a prolonged and extended period of time. George, welcome to the show. I'm super pumped uh, to have you on. You know, really what I want to do is I want to help some entrepreneurs build and scale their businesses. So I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I think a good place to start would be to take you back to, to Boston in the 80s. Could you sort of set the scene. I'm going to take you back to childhood. We don't have to spend a whole lot of time there, but I would I would like just for context, I think it's an important part of your particular story. Can you sort of explain, maybe set the scene of what your childhood was like back in the 80s in Boston? Yeah, no, great, great. I love the lead in. We're going right here. So Band-Aid's coming off. So uh, yeah, loving family that struggled with a lot of demons and didn't know how to show it. And so my childhood, you know, I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, and then right outside of Boston. And so most of my childhood was me getting beat up, bullied. I was the only white kid in my class for three years. Front teeth were knocked out three times. Broken nose. You know, the whole gamut of like, let's just stack it on. And my parents were dealing with some really deep, dark demons. And so there was a lot of drug abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. And so my childhood was basically a fast track in survival, what it felt like. Looking back now, obviously, I've done a lot of work. I've spent my life doing the work to heal this. But looking back, it it created a lot of resiliency in me. But there was a whole lot of nothingness that happened. If I didn't do it, it wasn't going to happen. And you know, I used to be a food blogger. And everybody asked me, like, what got you into cooking? And I was like, well, I was healing some childhood trauma, my eating disorders. I was like, but I never, not once in my entire life, ever had a dinner meal with my family at a table, like not once, like ever. The only meals I ever had were with friends, families, or when they took me out for dinner, right? It was kind of fend for yourself, survive for yourself. And so my childhood, it was both blessed and challenging at the same time. Because if I didn't have what I had, I wouldn't have the best friends and the families who took me in and let me live in their basements. I wouldn't have started working at 13. I wouldn't have developed the skill set that I had to do it. But it was at the time very, very rough. I was I was very isolated, very alone. But I was also juxtaposed against the escapism that most people in my family used, which was drugs, right? They were using everything you can imagine. It was alcohol, drugs, abuse, everything. And I grew up as a witness to that. I was like scared straight in my own home. And so all those times where I wanted to disconnect or I wanted to numb out, I was more petrified of doing that than I was of working for something different. And so I remember I got my first job. I was a paper boy at like 11. I lied about my age. I got every paper route I could find. I was riding my bike before school, getting myself to school, You know, started working real jobs at 13. And so I look at it now, it was like a blessing and a curse, but it was very challenging between social services, hospitalizations. I attempted my life as a child, lots of abuse, physical stuff. And so 
I look back now as my son is five years old and I'm reparenting him through a life that I never had. And I have this very different perception of what it was than I did, you know, 15 years ago when it was boohoo me. But it was a it was a pretty interesting time. And the things that I picked up, my father was one of the hardest workers I knew. And my father would try to work demons out, right? But he couldn't escape them because there was never the work done on them. And so he would work, he had attention to detail, he was proud of his work. Everybody who spoke about my father spoke about him so highly. But it was like I lived with Jekyll and Hyde because they saw one version and I got to see the other one, the demons and the darkness. And so I survived as as what I would say. I survived. And at 17, I was like, I got to get out of here. Like, I got to go. And I literally had no idea what to do. I was barely going to high school. Social services was involved. My teachers were absolutely incredible. If you're listening, because they listen to all my podcasts now, Mm -hmm. by the way, like 25 years later, they gave me a chance. They would pass me and help me never marked me as absent when I was working to survive. And I was like, I got to get out of here. And of course, there was a recruiter in my school. I was like, what's the hardest thing I can do? And I was like, I'll join the Marine Corps. And so that was the direction that I wanted to go. I was a little too fat. I was overweight. They helped me lose some weight. But at 17, I forged my parents' signature to dep into the United States Marine Corps. And then that kind of covered from 83 to 2002. Yeah. All right. So, uh, you know... I want to touch on just a few things. How many children do you have now? Just one, right? I have two. I have a 16-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son. Okay. So first marriage, second marriage? So she's my bonus daughter from my wife's first marriage. And then he's mine and my wife's, my son. Yep. Okay. All right. I got I got one of those two. So I understand. Yeah. I got I got a 24-year-old and I, I've got a seven-year-old. So I understand mm-hmm. that. The question I have for you is, with your five-year-olds, do you get any triggers of raising the child now where while you're while you're raising him do you get flashbacks of bad parenting and do you fight through that and if so how how do you deal with that yeah that's an incredible question yes the answer the answer is yes and it started it started the day he was born you know my father wasn't there when i was born he was out working and and even my young 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 childhood I remember I was neglected a lot. Like I had my first stitches when I was 11 months because I crawled down the stairs and split my head open. Like I, I remember these things. I've heard these things. And so from my wife's pregnancy into my son being born, it's been a series of triggers. And grateful to myself, after getting out of the military, EMDR was one of the most powerful modalities to help me heal and, and basically save my life. And through that, I started this work of consciousness and plant medicine and and things that I do now. And so I feel like I was prepared to face these things, but it doesn't make it any easier. Like last night, uh, my son and I were like, you know, cuddling on the couch and he said something and I was like, Hey, Bubbies, how's your bucket? And he's like, my bucket's empty. And I was like, well, why is your bucket empty? And he's like, well, because I just want to play with you. And in my brain, I'm like, we've been playing all day and I've given you all the attention, mummy's out of town. Like I haven't done anything today. But in his view, his bucket was empty. It wasn't his play. It wasn't his bucket or something along those lines. And in that moment, and those moments happen 30, 40, 50 times a day. I was like, I have two choices. Number one, I can negate him and say, no, that's not how it is. And then I'm repeating a pattern. Or number two, I can say, please tell me more. I hear you. Let's create a solution. And you know, that's what I choose to do. But then when he went to bed, I sat on the couch with some tears coming down my face and I'm getting emotional thinking about it right now mm-hmm. because that moment triggered all the times that I wanted attention, that I just wanted to be seen and I couldn't get it. And so it, it, it's funny how it played out because into my adult life, I became the king of accomplishment because I was like, if you're not going to see me, I'm going to make sure that you see me. I'm going to mm-hmm. be the best at everything. I'm going to tie the world records. I'm going to write a New York Times bestselling book, blah, 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 blah. And then I'm going to tell everybody everything that I do because I'm so scared and so insecure and afraid to be like, hey, Rob, I just want you to see me as a man, bro. Like, mm-hmm. I just want you to know that like, I have a big heart and I, I, I feel like I don't belong. And so it happens all the time. And, and luckily, <laughs> I'm blessed. My wife is incredible. She's been doing hypnosis and NLP and everything else you can imagine for 20 plus years. And has been a really big guide for me. But yeah, with my son, um, my son more than anything, it's been a whole lot of what I feel like witnessing his growth and his birth and his evolution as a human. And in the same process, having a very clear picture of how I get to reparent myself and really yeah. heal some of those traumas that that came up. 
Yeah, it's incredible. The reason why I ask, you know, look, our mutual friend, Christine Hassler, once said yep. to me, if, if you spot it, you got it. So yep. I, I love that saying because I, the reason why I asked the question is because I, you know, I, I, we're not interviewing me here, but I went through not nearly what you went through, but it wasn't good. It was in New York and I was abused a lot as a kid and it was physical abuse. It was a drunk alcoholic dad. And there are times, you know, I'm 55 years old now with a seven-year-old and there, there are times where I can like get these flashbacks of my, of my dad while I'm, you know, like I can almost hear me. I, I, it doesn't get to the point now where, where I say it, but I can, I could feel myself wanting to and interrupting that pattern isn't easy. That's why I asked that question. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. And, and I just want to say something because I have to, I, I don't, um, I've learned something. I've met people that had lives a thousand times worse than mine and they thought it was a cake in the park. And I've met people that have been like, you know, yours, I could never make it or they thrive through. And so the, the comparison of it is like, I think life in general is traumatic. And I, I just love everybody feeling safe to be able to express it and know that like, these are the things that molded us. And I think they're the things that make us special as entrepreneurs, right? Like my buddy oh, Alex Sharfin. Yeah. My buddy Alex says, you know, we're the crazy ones who decide to go out into the future, decide what it looks like and come back into the present to build it. And I think oh, we get good. this. Yeah. I think we get this edge because of our perspective and our stories and things like that. And so I know we're not interviewing you, but I really appreciate the question and you sharing uh, and putting yeah. it out here. Because I don't think yeah. it's talked about. I don't think it's talked about enough. I, I really, really don't. And I think it's a big permission slip for people. Particularly among men. Thousand percent. I want to talk to you a little bit about the military, which I know nothing about, like zero. I mean, like this hair does this hair does not belong in the military. You went to two places. You went to Somalia and yep. you went to Afghanistan. I want to start with Somalia. When when I think of Somalia, I think of Tom Hanks, that Tom Hanks movie, I'm the captain now. Right. Looking back on that tour, if, if that's what you call it, what was the most significant thing that comes to mind? Yeah. I was the hardest 13 months of my life. My entire Why? life. Because growing up in Boston with the world that I had, I believed that there was this beautiful world outside of it, right? When I could remove myself, I could get there's this different level of humanity, which for sure there was. But I never expected it 20 years old, 21 years old, to be exposed to the darkness of humanity that exists for such a prolonged and extended period of time. And it probably took me 15 years to fully process what I saw in 13 months of my life. From genocide to abuse to neglect to really the, the collapsing of the illusion that even what I had in the United States of America or how I grew up was somewhat bad or somewhat hard compared to what I saw. And so at 20 years old, when I'm running from my own trauma, now I'm in war in a combat zone. I'm dealing with things. I got injured pretty bad when I was over there. And then I met in this perspective where I see a two-year-old selling gum on the side of the road who's homeless trying to get food, who sleeps alone, and it breaks my heart. And then you drive down the street and people can't bury their dead. They're wrapped in carpets and picked up by this trash truck and burnt in an incinerator. And like you see this every day, all day. And it's normal. And it was this massive collapsing of this paradigm or this, this belief that I had, like maybe this cognitive dissonance that I had about how the world was. And then on top of it, we're there, you know, in another context, doing a job that not many people know about or even knew that we were there. And so what it felt like is it felt like I got unplugged from the matrix about 20 years before I was willing to take the red pill. And I didn't have the tools to process that. I didn't have the perspective and I was still living in trauma from my own life and then stacking more on top of it to be able to really understand what was happening. And so it was a very, very challenging time for me. And, and what was really interesting is that it wasn't challenging when I was there. Because when you're there, and, and I explain this to some people, like when you're deployed, for me personally, I don't want to speak for anybody else, deployments were easy for me because I had one thing to do. It was wake up, do my job, train, eat, sleep, go back to bed. Like I didn't have traffic and car insurance and phone calls and drama and emails and taxes, like Parkinson's law. Like I was in this container. It was when I came home 
And I came home after 13 months of being there that I was met with this stark reality of like the, the exact opposite of what I had lived in. And that's when it started to really challenge me. So it was a very big perspective, perspective shift and challenge for me. Hey, it's Rob. I want to jump in and take a quick second to say you got to get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you want to work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. After Somalia, did you go to Afghanistan? Six years, six-year gap. There was a six-year gap. And what did you do during that six years? Yeah, so I was still on active duty in the Marines. And so I came back (laughs) and then just worked. And so I went from North Carolina. I ended up getting stationed in Hawaii. And so when you're not deployed, you're either doing workups, you're training, you're helping other units that are deployed and doing those things. And so I had what you know would be called a job, just not like a nine to five. We were supporting other combat ops. I was calm. So I did a lot of communication stuff. So I was still involved. And so I was living a quote unquote life in Hawaii and in North Carolina, trying to process all of this. But the biggest thing for me is I was recovering. So I had a pretty severe injury. I got uh, bilateral exercise induced compartment syndrome in Somalia, which is one of the rarest things to ever happen. And so when I came home, I had to have five surgeries. And so I was in a wheelchair for uh, about 12 months. And so it wasn't uh, a gravy integration. When I came back, the day I got back, I ended up on the operating table. And so you know, my first day home from 13 months was I'm going into surgery. And then I had six surgeries, five surgeries over six months, and then about 12 months of physical therapy. And so as I hadn't dealt with that trauma or even knew that I was exposed to trauma because at 21 years old, I didn't know that that was traumatic. I thought you could see these things and just be normal. I didn't know it changed me, that it, you know, all the things that I know now. And so then I went through this process of, I'm going to get kicked out. I have nowhere to go. I can't walk. They told me I never walk again. I had some pretty horrific injuries. And then I'm on narcotics. I have a PCA pump in. So every six minutes, I'm getting morphine. And then I'm alone in a barracks room recovering from surgery after spending 13 months of my life in Somalia. And so it was a very, very dark time. I I became addicted. Yeah, go ahead. How How many total years were you in the military for? 13. And how many years... I don't know how it works. Do you have to do like a certain number of years or do you just keep Uh, re-signing up? Yeah, when you you join obligated service. So typically if you are enlisted, you do four-year or five-year contracts depending on your job. And so I was on a four-year contract. And so then I re-enlisted twice. And then I wasn't given the option on my last (laughs) one because I was medically separated. So yeah, uh, about 13 years. Okay. Then you went to six years from Somalia, you went to Afghanistan. Yep. What, yep. what was that experience like? Yeah. So let me close the loop for the Zygarnik yep. effect of my own brain. They wanted to medically separate yep. me in 2005 and I ended up making a full recovery. And so it was not easy by any means. I gained 100 pounds, you know, blah, blah, blah. I had to lose it all. Ended up making a full recovery, getting back on active duty, and then ended up getting sent to California, a 9th Com Battalion. And the moment I checked in, they're like, hey, we're going to Afghanistan. I was like, cool, let's go. And so that was 2010. And then that was a very different thing for me. So at that point, I had 55 Marines under my care, under my charge, like in my unit. I had a really big responsibility for my age and position, given that I wanted to be the best at everything. And that's kind of how I worked. And so Afghanistan was a very, very stark difference to Somalia because in Somalia... I was boots on the ground, but I also didn't realize I was was in the matrix. And I was like, just a soldier, right? I was a Marine. I was doing what I was told. I had no understanding of the upper echelons of politics and theory and war and and the world, let's call it the military industrial complex. Mm. But then you fast forward six years and now I'm in a position of leadership. And Mm. I have 55 Marines underneath me who were me six years prior. But now I'm in this place where it felt like I was riding a unicycle down a tightrope. Because I knew their world. And then I was in this other world. And the perspective was very different. And and Afghanistan was a very, very crazy place. Um, Just as violent, just different scene, different experience. You know, I'm not going to get into the politics of war or anything along those lines. But just a very, very different, like, 
we had a big footprint there, but we were going out every single day supporting calm and operations. And then I had Marines everywhere, flying all over the southern part of the country every single day. And then instead of me being out boots on the ground, most of the time I was in meetings. I was in meetings with leadership and the colonel and you know the bosses about what our Marines are doing, what's happening from a more strategic political standpoint. And quite frankly, that was even more challenging for me because at that point in my career, and I've actually never said this before, at that point in my career, I no longer believed at the Truman Show. Like I no longer really was like, I'm going to keep doing this because I think this is the best thing. I was very challenged. I had a whole lot of like tension in my body because I didn't agree and neither did my Marines with a lot of things that we were doing. And then me being in these meetings, it felt like we were convincing ourselves that these were the right things to do or that this made some semblance of sense. And so it was a very morally, ethically, and soul-challenging deployment for me. You know, we witnessed a lot. We had a lot of people get hurt and get injured. But was that there a one part was... Of- was there a part of you that felt comfortable in the chaos? Because, I mean, you quite literally were addicted. You, you came out into the world addicted to cocaine. Yep. Right? Yep. So you're raised in an absolute, in absolute chaos. Is there a part of you, do you think, that you were comfortable being in, in the chaos and it in a weird way, worked. There's a 100% confidence that you are completely correct. And I thrived in it. I thrived in it. And Because yeah. all your gears, your gears are wired to be in that shit show, right? Yeah. So yeah. actually, yeah. you're probably more uncomfortable in norm- normalcy. Oh yeah, a thousand percent. And, and that's where... There was this very big... If I could graph it out, it it was really, really interesting because the longer I stayed in, the more aware I became as a human, right? And, And even as a child, I naturally, for whatever reason, had a proclivity to the other side. I didn't want to be an addict. I didn't want to you know, go that route. But I also made it wrong and I chose different addictions. I chose working out. I chose, you know, body dysmorphia. I chose like being the best in marksmanship, in martial arts, as a swim instructor, as a rescue swimmer. Like (laughs) I found a new addiction and I justified that mine was different than my parents. But very much I was just turning that chaotic world into a different way to numb, except I was numbing in something that from the outside world made it look like I was being a good human being and I was pursuing something different. And I was like, yeah. You know, because working out five hours a day is like really, really healthy, right? And, right, you know, right. g- doing these things and not sleeping and being here. And so I a thousand percent thrived in it. And I even convinced myself for a good 10 years that it was me being different. Like, I'm not being my parents, I'm not being my father, I'm not being, you know, whatever. And then it was actually in the gap between Somalia and Afghanistan, my dad passed away from cancer. And the Marine Corps sent me home on a humanitarian transfer for six months because I was the I was the only person who could support my father. And you know, for six months, I got to be a parent to my father, which was a very big role reversal on where we were. And it was about three weeks before he passed away that we we made some really deep, deep peace. And it was a, one of the most dramatic experiences of my life. But my father had had his leg amputated. He had metastatic brain and lung cancer, so he was paralyzed from the neck down. Parts of his body started failing. They amputated his leg. He couldn't walk. And I'll never forget. I'll never forget that day. He, he looked me dead in the eye and he's like, I fucking hate you. And I was like, I've been taking care of you for five and a half months. How fucking dare you? I hate you. And he's like, you haven't been taking care of me. You've been patronizing me and punishing me. And, and I was like, oh, kind of like you did for 18 years of my life. And it, it, it went to this and we yelled at each other for 12 hours, Rob. Like, I mean viciously yelled, like drenched in sweat, like you couldn't even imagine. And at the end of it, I sat down on the bed next to him and I broke down in tears. He was crying. And I'll never forget. I've never talked about this, but I'll never forget this. We were both so exhausted. I gave him a hug and we laid down and we were both tired. We passed out and we slept like that for like 10 hours. Mm. And we woke up the next day. It was very, very different. There was this calmness. There was this peace. I'd call it this level ground of like, we, I released probably 25 years of trauma and my father released 56 because my father was, had five fathers in 10 years that beat the shit out of him and his mother and, you know, witnessed things that nobody should ever have to witness. And so 
I think for the first time in my life and his life, we had a mutual respect and understanding and, and we're clear. And so, you know, he passed away about 18 months before I went to Afghanistan. And mm. to be really upfront about it, I never dealt with my childhood trauma. I never dealt with my Somalia trauma. And I never dealt with my dad because the moment my dad passed away, I went back to work and we were in workups. We spent 12 months getting ready to deploy. So I was back to work, 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 work. And then I got deployed. And so when I was in Afghanistan, my father's death kind of cracked the shell open of the matrix for me. And I was addicted to the chaos and I was good at the chaos, but there was a part of me that could no longer do it. And it was creating this massive pull in me to do something different, but I didn't know what it was. And so that's why I think that deployment was, was very challenging for me. What an interesting healing. You know, healing happens in all kinds of weird ways. I had a, a, a similar, similar situation with my dad when he was dying of cancer and we hadn't talked for so many years. I was so angry. And probably in the last year, we had, it wasn't as, as, as intense as yours was, but it was in the hospital. And I, I just, I, I remember just sitting there looking at a bag of bones. You know, it was, it was on death's door. But having that healing at that time was so meaningful and useful for me because if I didn't have it, I would not want to spend the rest of my life with that anger in my heart for sure. So having that done was great. <clears throat> the other thing that I think is interesting, which is how we, how those kinds of things require us or, or cause us to do very strange, very different behaviors based upon what we saw. And I remember I was with, I'll use another reference. I just used Christine's husband, Stephanos, yeah. who's also a mutual friend. We'll link him up in the show notes so people can follow him. We were having a conversation one night about my dad and, you know, I was telling him it was really tough, you know, with, with alcoholism and stuff like that. And he said, was there ever a good time? And I said, well, Whenever we went on vacation, it was weird because he was a truck driver and he hated doing what he did. And he got up at four o'clock in the morning in the cold and blah, blah, blah. But for some reason, he was also a scuba diver. He loved to dive. And that's where the water came in. Mm -hmm. And for whatever the reason was, whenever we took a trip, he was a different guy. He didn't drink as much. He was happy. And I knew I wouldn't get beat when I was on vacation with him. And we went on vacation a lot uh, because he had a lot of time and he loved the Caribbean. So we went to like Jamaica. It was a big one. We went there a lot. And Stefano said to me, he said, do you think there's any wonder that what you do for a living is traveling around the world on vacation? And I said, holy shit, holy shit. I've never fucking thought of that. Yeah. He said, it's your, ha it's your happy place, man. It's your safe zone. That was the place where you felt the safest. And, you know, unlocking those little things are so powerful. All right. We're going to talk about business. We'll call it 1.0. You, you got really into the paleo stuff and you created yeah. an app called Caveman Feast, which went to number one on iTunes. And then yeah. you wrote a book called Paleo Kitchen, which was on yeah. a New York Times bestseller for 20, 22 weeks. Yeah. What was it that made you want to walk away from two really big wins like that? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. It's important to understand why I started Paleo. So when I was in Afghanistan and I had that wedge driven in my brain and body, but like, I can't live this way anymore. I was self-abusive. Like I was the best CrossFitter in competing, but I was also abusing myself through other ways. And I didn't want to be that way. I didn't want to be bulimic anymore. <clears throat> I didn't want to struggle with body image anymore. And I just accidentally kind of found this, you know, paleo thing. And so I, I made a rule with myself that when I came home from Afghanistan, I was going to teach myself how to cook. But I wasn't going to tell anybody that I was bulimic or that I struggled with eating disorders. But I wanted to do this so I could just heal myself. And so I taught myself how to cook and I just started posting it on Facebook. And I had to make a fake college account back at this time. It was 2010 because I didn't go to college and I couldn't get a Facebook account. So I made a fake college email, got a Facebook account. And I would just post the recipes that I was making every day on Facebook for accountability without telling anybody that's what was happening. And so this continued and nobody was seeing, nobody was seeing. And about three months in, it started to really kind of get legs and take off. And it was never a plan or an intention of mine. And so I started riding the lightning, right? I was like, oh, someone's like, you should have a blog. I'm like, what's a blog? Made a blog. And then like, boom, boom, boom. And then before you know it, 
I'm still an active duty Marine and now I'm having to blog and be a blogger and make a recipe every day. And so that business was started so I could basically heal myself of my eating disorders and have a good relationship with myself. But I never told anybody that. And so I'm riding this career high. I have a book that's you know hit number four in the New York Times. I have an app that does what it does. And then I'll never forget, I went to give a keynote at Paleo Effects on how you can use food to create breakthrough results everywhere in your life. I'll never forget it. The three ways to do it. And my wife looked at me right before I went up on stage and she's like, are you really going to go up there and lie again? And it challenged every ounce of my being. And I went up there and in front of all my peers, biggest audience I've ever had, I apologized for lying to everybody. And I told them why I was paleo. And I said, it started with my sexual abuse, my body dysmorphia, my bulimia. And I cleaned it all up. I cleaned it all up very, very big, very, very loud and went on two of the biggest podcasts in the world to talk about it the next week. And that moment, that moment, those two days, because it was two distinct days, the day I gave the keynote and then the next day when both my friends wanted to interview me about it, those two days were big pivotal moments because the day after I started processing, I no longer wanted to be a food blogger. I didn't want to be an influencer. I didn't want to have the attention. And I felt like I'd healed and cured what it was that I was doing this for. But then I was afraid to let it go. And so then for three more years, I kept doing this job of like trying to check the box and doing it. And it was soul crushing for me because I felt like I was holding on to an anchor of a past that I had did the work to let go of. And I was kind of afraid to shift it and do anything different. And so I just kept holding on to it. And I held on to it. And I held on to it. And I held on to it. And then over the series of time, as I held on to it, I just kept going and kept going. It got worse and worse and worse to where I was afraid to walk away. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know, should I sell it? Should I do anything? And I wouldn't talk about it with anybody. So it was a source of tension in my marriage. And it was there. And I went from this multi-seven-figure business to like losing money every month as I was sabotaging it out again. And then I ended up going down to Costa Rica. I spent seven days in silence. And had a meeting with Mother Ayahuasca and it became crystal clear to me in that moment. And I came home and against what everybody, and I mean everybody told me to do, I picked up the phone. I made one phone call. I was like, I'd like to give you a present. I was like, I would like to transfer this entire thing to you, bank accounts included, tomorrow and walk away. And uh, they said yes. And so I did. It was one of the best moments of my life because I felt like it was the first time in my entire existence that I made a decision for just me. Not if somebody was going to hit me or not, not if I was going to be accepted or not. But it was like, I wanted to make it. I trusted myself to make it. And I was willing to stand in it, whatever was out there. And so to answer that shortly, the reason that I walked away from the wins is because they were never really wins for me. I never celebrated Mm -hmm. them. They were never grounded in the right reason. That business was a way for me to hide in plain sight. And it felt misaligned and completely incongruent to who I was and who I wanted to be as a person. And so it was one of the easiest things that I ever walked away from. How did ayahuasca give you the clarity that you need? Like what was it? Like walk me through just this, just a highlight. Like, like yeah. is, is do you see it as a as a vision? Is it just a knowing? For me, ayahuasca, like now is I, you know, I've I've done it quite a few times. And the best advice I can I can give is that the, the healing isn't in the plant, it's in the person, but it helps you see what's there. And for me, it gave me an outside perspective to see myself objectively without judgment. And so I got to look at how I was showing up in life, how I was treating people, how I was treating myself. And instead of continuing to collect it as evidence to make it wrong, to make myself wrong, I got to see it objectively from a place of compassion and love. And it it really simplified it down to, oh yeah, do you want to keep living this way? And the answer is no. Got it. You know, you've said that business exists as part of yourself and not as a separate entity. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think I think for me, what I mean by that is it's fully aligned and congruent. Like when I lay my head on the pillow at any moment, you could take a snapshot of my my business and life and it would be aligned. Like I'd be proud of it. My kids would be proud of it. And if today was the day that like I died and I was done, that every single person who came into contact with me would speak from a place of alignment and how they felt about me and my business, that it made them feel better and that it was who I wanted to be. And so it's the like mind, body, soul of like, I don't want to have to change who I am or turn off parts of myself to be a quote unquote different person in the business or to be a personality or be on social. I want to be who I am and then use 
the parts of my business as an extension of that. And so it's a big thing about alignment and congruency for me because I feel like as a Marine, I was a Marine, but that is not who I was. Like I was not a Marine. Like I didn't believe in a lot of the stuff that was there, but I played the game. And then even mm-hmm. as I was a food blogger, I was doing it, but I never told everybody why I was doing it. And so it felt like I'd wake up in the morning and it was like pulling teeth to get me to go do something because it felt so misaligned to who I was. And it was just a simple lack of integrity for me, but it wasn't something I wanted to do. I never actually really enjoyed cooking, which is hilarious. Uh, And then you Mm -hmm. become a New York Times bestselling cookbook author. But you know, it was just that. So now for me, it's like, okay, cool. Like, I don't want it to feel like work. Like, I want to be able to talk about my business and my life in the same sentence. I want to be able to have relationships and friendships with you and other people where we can talk about dads, trauma, scuba diving, New York versus Boston, and then get into customer journey podcasting and it all be encompassed in the same world. Not that I have to change any part of it. So for me, it's just that full alignment. Okay, I want to jump in for 15 seconds and say if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. So let's let's talk about what you're doing now. How, yeah. how are things different now? And yeah. what is it that you do? Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. The, the easiest way to put it, as I say, I help entrepreneurs ethically build and scale their business. And they're like, oh, what does that mean? And I'm like, well, it's really, really simple. I was like, I don't think any of us are doing this to fail. And I was like, but the reasons people get stuck are because they focus on the wrong things. And so I, I coined this phrase and trademarked it called relationship speed algorithms. And I have this theory that nobody has a mark, business or marketing problem. Everybody has a relationship problem with either themselves, their team, or their customers informed in that order. And so what I do now is any entrepreneur from I've never made a dollar online to my biggest client who does $7 billion a year, I work with them on building world-class, congruent customer journey and marketing that match who they are. So it's not checking a box, creating disconnection, or doing any of that. And so... You know, I've worked. I mean, I've worked with everybody you can imagine. But now, it doesn't matter who you are. If if you love what you do, if you love your clients, you actually care about the results. Then I'd love to work with you. And like that's what it is. It's customer journey. It's email marketing. It's congruency and consistency in the messaging. It's making sure that you're aligned in your heart, body, and soul. And this is who you are and who you want to be. And and I I always give it the grandmother test. I ask people, I'm like, would you be okay if your marketing went to your 85 year old grandmother? And then that, that typically gives me the answer that I need to have, right? And so I look at it like making sure that your podcast, that your business, that your marketing, that your product isn't out here trying to make money. It's trying to make a difference, right? Because money is a byproduct of creating results in somebody's life. And quite frankly, in the last 10 years in digital marketing, money has become a, how can I get somebody to buy something and not get the result? And that's been the big paradigm. And I don't think that's true. I don't think it should be that way. I don't think... I just don't think it's okay. I think it needs to stop and it shift. And so, you know, people have said you put the heart back in marketing, you put the heart back in business. But for me, I can't remember one time I walked into a brick and mortar store or to a car dealership or to a grocery store or to a restaurant where they treated me like crap. They took my money and didn't deliver on what it was that they wanted to. And then I left and gave them a raving review. But yet online, that exists all the time. Upsells and downsells and credit cards and chargebacks and no refunds. And I was like, can we just put the humanity back into business and marketing? And that's what I love to do. Why do you think that that is not there? You think because it's there's a... You can hide behind a keyboard? I think there's complacency and complicitness in both of it. I think there's complacency on the part of the consumer where it's complained about, but yet it's still done. And then I think there's complicitness where... The people that are doing it know that there's probably a better way and it's misaligned, but they're like, people are still consuming it. So let's keep doing it. And so, yeah, there's this like instant consume, like instant consumption modality that's out there, right? This paradigm that exists of like, I want it now. There's this paradigm of like, if I buy this course or if I read this book or if I go to this seminar, that it's going to change who I am. But Mm. we know that that requires work. And then there's the other side of it where it's like, I know people are coming to this course and they're going to leave and not do anything with it, but I'm okay with it because that's on them. And so I see it kind of as a, as a two-pronged approach, but both people are on the dance floor. 
And in order for the dance to stop, one of them has to get off. And I think it's the responsibility of the business owners, the course creators, the, the people like us that have an influence to be willing to put a stake in the sand that says, I don't just care about your credit card. I actually care about you getting the result so that it had a value to what you purchased. You know, it, it's interesting to me. I was having lunch today in a little rooftop bar here. And it's, you know, it's, it's like this, it's, it's got this spectacular view, right? This is, if you can see it. I can't see, see it. Oh yeah, it's incredible. Like this crazy view, right? And so yeah. right where I'm standing, it's like, it's two blocks from my house here. And it's for, for those of you that are listening on audio, it's a picture of, if you've seen Florence, the big church that's in the middle of the city. And there is a lineup of 20 somethings that you know are taking 4,800 pictures, every angle, flipping their hair, trying to get it, you know, like just trying to find a picture that they can live with. And I know where that's going. It's immediately going on Instagram. And that will go from Instagram to creating a narrative about who the person is and what their story is, et cetera. And in some ways, we have crafted these crazy narratives about who our lives are. And, and I'm guilty of it too. I mean, sometimes yeah. I'll look back and I'll be like, I wish my life looked I wish my life was half as fucking good as it looks on Instagram. Do right. you know what I mean? Like yes. it, it, it's really, it's crazy. And then, you know, there's this demand that happens from everybody. That's like, I want to have this life and I want to buy what you're selling, but you're crafting a story. And so I love the fact that you are putting heart back in this. And one of the reasons, frankly, that I made this move to Italy is because I, I miss humanity. I miss heart. I miss people. I miss the, you know, the, the Italians, they hug you, they kiss you, they yep. love you. Like I miss that. And so yeah. I love, I love the fact that you're doing this for people that are trying to grow and scale a business. What initial steps do you yep. recommend that they start with? Such a good question. Such a good question. And it's a really, really easy one. Don't focus on acquisition, focus on fulfillment. It's not about how do I get the next customer? And the one question I always ask is, does every customer you currently have, did they get or get closer to the desired result that was promised? And not once. And I mean, not once. In 10 years of doing this, and all my clientele, anyone said yes. And typically, it's because it's this ultimate consumption society. So what do I mean by that? Like, If you tell somebody that like, Hey, I'm going to give you a 7-day challenge to sleep better. If in the middle of that, on day three, you pitched them a product and it never went through their journey. You didn't help them sleep better. You actually created something, didn't finish it, created an open loop and interrupted them and said, well, you have to pay me to sleep better, right? Or if you're like, I'm going to help you sleep better in seven days and you give them a PDF, a PDF doesn't help somebody sleep better. The promised journey does, right? And so when I think about this, whether you're giving out lead magnets, giving out content, selling courses, selling programs... The question to ask yourself, have I designed or done everything in my power to design a journey so that they have the best possible chance of getting a desired result? And so it's like, I give this analogy all the time. If, if client A and client B walk into the gym and they both have 100 pounds to lose and client A says, I want to lose 100 pounds. I'm like, all right, cool. Here's your workouts. Here's your meal plans. Here's your supplements. I'll see you in 12 months. And client B comes in and I'm like, hey, listen... We got a year together. I want you to go home, drink 12 ounces of water, and then be here tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Which one's going to lose 100 pounds in 12 months? Not client A. Client A is going to get frustrated, feel alone, overwhelmed, have deep amounts of reactance. And client B is going to be step-by-step -step guided through everything that it's done to where even if they don't lose 100 pounds, they feel momentum and a win because progress was made. And in the world that we live in, our job when we say, I'm going to help you grow and scale your business. I'm going to help you with email. I'm going to help you with your sleep. I'm going to help you with your energy. Is not to sell a product. It's to create a container to where their best chance of success can happen. And that typically means you have to be the leader. You have to be the personal trainer. You have to be the hostess in the restaurant. When I say, I want a table, it says, okay, sir, here's where. Walk me to my table, sit me down, give me the menus, not walk into an empty stand, seat yourself, have no communication. We live in a world of customer journeys. And if you are not intentionally designing yours, then your people are in somebody else's or not in one at all. And so the best thing that you can do is don't focus on acquisition, focus on fulfillment. Because when you focus on fulfillment, it goes from having 100 people that bought your product and five getting a result 
to 100 people that bought your product, to 100 having a positive experience, maybe 25 getting a result, and all of them turning into a marketing machine since 86 plus percent of marketing is word of mouth. But nobody can ever talk about an experience that was less than positive or left them feeling less than. And so if you're like, hey, I have a 30-day course, take them on a 30-day journey and help them get the best result possible. When you get off the phone with somebody and you say you're going to follow up, follow up immediately and give them exactly what was talked about. And don't live in this world of like, it's on them, it's on them. No, they paid you, it's on you. You can't do the work for them but they expect a container or a journey that can do that. And so I'd say 10 out of 10 times, Rob, the biggest lever that I pull in most businesses, even if they're like, I only have 15 students. I'm like, amazing. I was like, that's 15 amazing people that have agreed to work with you. Have they all gotten a result? And they're like, well, I don't know. I'm like, cool, pick up the phone and ask them. And then all of a sudden, the roadmap to scale lays itself out. They're like, oh my God, I did, but I need help with this. Or no, I've been struggling with this. But a lot of people are afraid to be in a relationship with those customers and on the back end because everything we live in right now is just sell the wrapping paper, not what's in the box. And what's in the box is what makes the biggest difference. So whether you're doing 10 grand a month, a million a month, or 10 million a month, our focus is always the same. Is everybody who buying your product or service achieving the desired result? And if not, how can we create a journey or a container that helps them achieve it or that we can't be the reason that they don't? Because if we're not the reason they don't, instead of blaming us or gaslighting us or getting upset, they call us and ask us for help. And that's where the relationship happens, right? That's where you get in. They tell you what they're struggling with. They tell you what their fears are. They ask you what they need to do next. They ask for guidance. And you get a very clear roadmap mapped out of where it is. But most of what I see now, Rob, is everyone like, okay, the offer, the blah, blah, blah. And they focus on like selling it like snake oil, but it's really disconnected because it's not what people are saying. It's what we think they want to hear. But the secret isn't like what people are actually doing. And so the first thing I tell everybody is get in a deep, connected, two-way, value-based relationship with anybody that you already have. Because that is a gold mine for what's out there. And then once that's done, ensure that anybody who ever comes into your world again... And that is as far as listening to your podcast, following you on Instagram, sending you an email, is never left out without a next step ever again. So like when you meet me at an event and I give a keynote, I do not sell from stage. I never have. I never will. And I just don't believe it. And I'd rather connect with you. And you come up and you ask me a question. I answer your question. And then I say, and here's what I want you to do, Rob. I'd love to hear how this works. So here's my personal email address. Could you email me when it's done and let me know so I can take a peek at it because I actually want to see how it went. Or you email me and I'm like, yeah, Rob, here you go. I'm responding. I'm also going to check in with you 30 days from now just to make sure that it's still working. But like, my job as a leader is to always have one next step or else I'm not creating change. I'm not helping anything. I'm just throwing noise out into the world. And so that's how I think the number one biggest way that anybody can focus on building and scaling their business is building and scaling the back end because that's where it happens like no business no billion dollar business has ever been built on acquisition with a ton of people who hate the company and then go talk crap about it they go out of business every successful business that has stayed in business or scaled has come from people on the back end getting results having a positive experience telling you what they need more of, and then telling all of their friends that it's a good idea to come work with you. Pick a business, pick an industry, doesn't matter. We're surrounded by marketing all day. The clothes that we wear, the cars that we drive, the strollers that we do, the gym that we go to, the trainer, the waiter at the restaurant, the barista that we ask for, the coffee shop on the corner. The average person gives 8 to 10 brand recommendations or non-recommendations in a 60-second conversation. And if you are not intentionally giving them ammunition to be one of them, then they're not going to say anything positive. And so for me, building and scaling a business is all based on the depth and the quality of the relationship once you have somebody's attention, whether they're email or the credit card. Okay. So... Um, that was a lot. Sorry. No, that was actually really, really useful. And it made me... It triggered a question for me. So a lot of people ask me this question and I always, I always struggle a bit to answer. So I'm going to... I'm going to ask it to you, but I'm going to use myself as an example. Love it. So, so I'm pretty much in the fulfillment business myself, right? Mm-hmm. So basically what I'm after is people going all in 
on all the areas of their life, not just business. I, I spent many, many years going all in on just business. And there's just so much more to life than just business. And as a result of that, lots of different offerings have come up in my life, in my business. I'm currently writing a book. I have this podcast. I do private coaching. I have a mastermind, an international mastermind that we discussed earlier. I have a platinum level mastermind for higher level people. And we're in the process of creating uh, a YouTube show of what a, what a family is like moving from America and dropping themselves in Love the middle it. of Fl Florence, Italy. With all of those things that are going on, it gets very confusing about mm -hmm. what are you focusing on? Are you trying to build the coaching business? Are you promoting your book? Are you promoting your podcast? Are you promoting the event you're doing next in Amalfi, the next one that you're doing in Dubai? Are you going to be talking about your YouTube show? You get the idea. Mm -hmm. How do you give somebody who has the entrepreneurial ADD like I do, that is just all over the place? And, and thematically, it's all about fulfillment. And I can make a case mm -hmm. for each one of these things, how it steps into fulfillment. But how do you recommend to a guy like me that has all these different bubbles that are going in... In a how how would you recommend a focused methodical way of promoting that on social marketing it customer journey with all these different things happening? I love this question because it's such an easy answer. Okay, because all of the things that you said are just wrapping papers or touch points, no different than a billboard driving down the road, but they all share one thing in common. And I know you from the outside and know you a little bit here. What you help people do is either experience or create magical experiences in their life. You create memories through experience. That's what you do, right? In your mastermind, you have a YouTube about your family moving from America to Italy, which is about an experience and a feeling that somebody has about this magical experience. The photos you post, looking around Florence, taking people to all these places. Would you agree that like what you really help people do is probably pursue some positive experience in their life going back to what Stefano said to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Because now it doesn't matter what you promote or when you promote it because they're all breadcrumbs if they're tied to that one thing. And they're just touch points in a cog of a wheel. People get really wrapped up in customer journey trying to make it linear. When was the last time you had a linear emotional journey as a human being? I'm going to feel this and then I'm going to feel this and then I'm going to feel this and then I'm going to do this. Never. Ever, 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 ever. None of it's linear. It's all very, very cyclical in this big wheel and this big cog. When people struggle, like when you have, Angie calls it ADD2, Angie Lee, entrepreneurial ADD, and you have, it's like all these shiny things. It only feels like that if you're looking at the shiny thing. But what do all the shiny things have in common? All the shiny things have in common is they're all in this world of yours about creating magical experiences and living your best life because that was what is congruent to you based on your childhood. Yep. For me, it's about helping people create world-class customer journeys and putting relationships back into everything. Relationships beat algorithms. And so it doesn't matter if I have a podcast, a YouTube video, I give a keynote. Basically, as long as I say, and Rob, that's how relationships beat algorithms. It becomes a touch point in the wheel and it's congruent to what I'm doing. Our job is to tell the narrative that holds it together. And so there's never going to be an equally balanced linear approach like, okay, event, coast, Amalfi, Dubai, podcast, book. And it shouldn't ever be because it makes them all wrong and it gets really, really rigid. It should be, these are all part of my ecosystem and I'm going to rotate through what's here and what feels good. And whatever people are attracted to, they're going to come more into, but it's all in the realm of creating this magical experience. Because there's going to be people that only want to read your book that only want to listen to your podcast, that only want to come to your event, that only want to be in your mastermind and don't want to do any of the other things, but they all have one thing in common. They're learning this one thing from you or getting this one thing from you that no matter what touch point you give them, it gives them that experience or helps move them one step closer to it. I love that. What, what a great answer. I could literally... I have a thousand more questions that I could literally go all day with you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it I'm we'll do, do a, a round two. We'll do a round two if everybody likes round one. You got it. Let's do a, a quick rapid fire round. Oh, what yeah. would your friends? What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Seeing people at their potential and holding them to it. Do you collect anything, or have you ever collected anything? I collect guns. Very Montana of you. Very Montana um, of me. 
What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? For help. You may, you may regret that. What book have you reread the most? Ooh, uh, The Catalyst by Jonah Berger. Mm, never heard of that one. Okay. It's an amazing book. What's your guilty pleasure? Blueberry chocolate chip pancakes with a maple pecan syrup stacked as high as I can get it until I have as much pain in my belly as possible. Wow, that was really clear. Let's change it up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? Oh, how do you define success? Well, I'm really clear about this and I've been asked this a lot. So if you want to do a second one, we can. But I always feel like I'm giving a bullshit answer, but it isn't. It's, it's truly how I feel. I've just done it so many times that it feels like bullshit to me. But here's the answer. Doing what I want with who I want as often as I want the way I want to do it. I just, I really want the absolute freedom to just be able to do exactly what I want. If I want to pick up and move to Florence, Italy, I'm moving to Florence, Italy. Because there's a part two to that question. How does your daughter define your success? Oh, you should have led with that one. I don't know how I can answer that. How would I know? It's one that I've been wrestling with a lot lately and it keeps me up at night because my son tells me what my success looks like to him. And then there's times I feel it and I don't. And so I ask the men in my life how their children would define their success because I feel like there's a, a tightrope balance between work and play and connection and impact and legacy, but also presence. And so... Well, I'll tell you this. I think that... I think I, I, I can't give you an answer because I, I can't speak for her, but I'd have to get an answer from her. But if I'm sort of like having to take a stab at it on her behalf, I think it's going to be contextual and I think it's going to mm -hmm. change. I think right mm -hmm. now, success would be playing Roblox with her or... I do a lot of that. Or, or, or you don't do this, but playing with the, you know, Barbies. So yeah. those, I'm very good at Barbies, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say that would be where it is now. But I, but I will tell you this. I had an aha moment today. <clears throat> and I've realized that as I was, and the reason why it was today is because we're recording this 24 hours uh, the day before New Year's Eve. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's that time of year where us entrepreneurs sit down and, you know, we get really jacked up about, you know, so what's the next 12 months going to look like? Not it, we're, we're beyond resolutions, but we, but we do like to have those, you know, what are the goals going to be like, right? And, you know, I always try and like carve out a personal goal, a, fam a family one, a, a wife one, the kids, kids one, that kind of thing. And every year, those goals, to your point of, of my daughter, every year those goals are around, you know, I'll spend 30 minutes a day playing or something like that. And I'm not going to do that this year. It's going to be more thematic. And by thematic, I mean, with my wife, it'll be, I want to cherish her or I want her to feel cherished. And with my daughter, it would be around <clears throat> listening more and paying attention to paying more attention when she talks, something like that, where it's not prescriptive, where like mm -hmm. come home, spend 30 minutes, get on the floor and play, which is sort of what I did. Now it's going to be more of a theme. And I don't, I don't, I haven't, haven't worked it out yet exactly, but I want to create more of a theme. <clears throat> that, yeah, I love it. By the, by the way, if you guys haven't figured out, we're in the midst of a, <laughs> of, a, of a COVID pandemic. The two of us are hiding our mics, trying not to cough in your face. Well, listen, <clears throat> this was um, absolutely fantastic. I'm so glad yeah. that we had a chance to do this. I feel like we will be friends forever. And do you have any final words or suggestions or an ask for the people that are listening? Yeah, my ask is really, really simple. I don't regret this. This is I built my life and business to actually help people. And so that's all okay. I do. And so if I can, in any way, the best place to get me is shoot me a DM on Instagram with any question you have, anything that you need. <clears throat> I personally handle them. I will respond to them. It, trust me, I've gotten thousands of them and it's taken me weeks to work through them, but it's been the most fulfilling part of my life. And so that's the best place to get a hold of me. And so if I can help you with Mark, Marketing, customer journey, anything that I can do, shoot me a DM on Instagram. My Instagram is it's like ITS. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I forgot what my Instagram is. That's my email. My Instagram is mind of George, I believe, or 
Oh, it's George Bryant. I was right. Yeah, no. Smash my email. My Instagram is it's George Bryant. And uh, just shoot me a DM. I will get it. And if you don't want to shoot me a DM, I would check out my podcast, which is called The Mind of George Show. Awesome. Thanks again, George. Of course. Thanks for having me, man. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. Oh,